Chemical Watch podcast. Unlock the full value of your compliance and product stewardship with world-leading insight and intelligence from Chemical Watch. To find out more or request a demo, visit chemicalwatch.com. Chemical Watch. Intelligence to transform product safety. Hello and welcome to this week's news podcast hosted by members of the Chemical Watch team. I'm Kate Lowe, Global Managing Editor at Chemical Watch, and for today's episode, I'm joined by our North America Managing Editor, Terry Highland, our Europe Correspondent, Clelia Oziel, and Science Editor, Andrew Turley. The subjects we'll be discussing today include Washington State's announcement that it will prohibit the use of per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, in four types of food packaging after it identified viable alternatives. We'll also be looking at how the UK's Health and Safety Executive, or HSE, says it will seek independent advice on UK reach authorizations and restrictions by drawing from a pool of experts on a case-by-case basis in an, an approach that deviates from ECHA's. But first, let's start with the European Commission, which has lost a landmark appeal case to reverse an annulment of its decision to authorise lead chromates in paints. In its judgment published last week, the EU Court of Justice, the ECJ, rejected the Commission's claims, upholding a 2019 ruling that cancelled the authorization granted to Canadian company Dominion Colour Corporation to sell pigments for paints containing lead chromates on the single market. The EU executive filed the appeal after a general court judgment that its decision to grant authorization was illegal. The case was brought by Sweden, which said the Commission and ECHA did not do enough to establish that there were no suitable alternatives, pointing out the substances were withdrawn from the Swedish market at least 30 years ago. Since 2016, DCC has had authorization for six uses of lead sulfur chromate yellow and lead chromate molybdate sulfate red, covering a wide range of applications, including metal paints, industrial plastics and road markings. So, Clelia, uh, this is an important case with potentially significant implications for the process behind authorization decisions. But before we get into the detail of that, um, can you just talk us through the ECJ's decisions regarding each of the Commission's key arguments? Hi, Kate. Um, As you say, um, this was a very important judgment, um, which will have some major implications going forward, essentially about the assessment of alternatives when considering whether to authorise SVHCs or not. The Commission based its appeal on four separate pleas. The first of these um, was was about the level of proof required to demonstrate that there are no suitable alternatives for SVHCs when companies apply for authorization. The question here was whether the lack of alternatives could be established with absolute certainty or is there room for some uncertainty? 
The Commission said the general court ruling required absolute certainty, uh, but that this was impossible to attain because any technical or scientific assessment would, by its very nature, be tainted with uncertainty. For example, some information could be missing at the time of the assessment. The ECJ rejected this first plea and uh, said that the standard of proof required by the general court was not unreasonable, as the Commission had said, and did not mean absolute certainty about the lack of alternatives. Now, in the second plea, the Commission said it was entitled to conclude that an alternative is not feasible when it does not satisfy exactly the same technical performance as the substance of very high concern. It said that this had been disregarded in the court's judgment. But the ECJ rejected this and agreed with the court that it was illegal for the Commission to require the same technical performance from alternatives. It said that this would contradict the objective of authorization, for example, which is to encourage substitution. In the third plea, the Commission challenged the court's finding that it had failed in its duty to verify the lack of suitable alternatives. And again, the ECJ rejected this. However, it accepted the Commission's fourth plea, which is about the effect of annulments of the authorization decision. The Commission said the applicants, the Canadian DCC, could continue to sell the pigments until a new decision was adopted. The court, however, had asked for the sales to stop immediately. However, this part of the ruling will have a limited impact as the substances are no longer used in some of the applications. Okay, thanks, Clelia. Um, now, NGOs have hailed the verdict as a turning point in the approach to authorization, saying it invites a structural change in the way ECHA and the Commission consider the availability of alternatives in authorization decisions. So are they right? Yes, I think they're most probably right. Um, the Commission cannot ignore the ruling from the top EU court, which effectively calls for the Commission to assess the availability of, of alternatives much more thoroughly before it grants an authorization. Basically, the Commission says, you don't need to look for alternatives that perform the same way as the SVHC, but you do need to ensure that there are no major uncertainties about whether alternatives exist or not. Now, that opens up huge possibilities for innovative alternative products. The Commission said it is carefully analysing the ju judgments and how it may have an impact on the way the Commission or ECHA assesses authorisation applications. Meanwhile, the Commission has also pledged to revise REACH authorization processes by 2022, so watch this space. That's great. Thanks, Clelia. Um, now, the Commission has faced several challenges over its authorization decisions. So can you, can you touch on some of the, the most recent cases? Yes, actually, on the same day as the lead chromate decision, the Commission suffered another legal defeat this time concerning the use of the phthalate DEHP in recycled PVC, recycled plastics. This is an appeal case that was brought by the NGO Client Earth and has implications about the use of SVHCs in the circular economy 
and whether these substances can be controlled through reach authorization processes. The ruling from the ECJ is not expected for some time, but, uh, but the Advocate General published its opinion on the case and sided with Client Earth, rejecting the Commission's appeal. It said that when it authorized DEHP in 2019, the Commission did not consider the endocrine-disrupting effects of the substance and based the decision only on reproductive toxicity. There is also another potential uh, legal challenge against the Commission, this time from the European Parliament, concerning authorization of uses of chromium dioxide. We understand that this is imminent, however, we wait to hear the news. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much, Clelia. So now let's turn to the US, where, as we noted earlier, uh, Washington State has announced it will prohibit the use of per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, in four types of food packaging after identifying viable alternatives. Now, the ban, which will take effect in early 2023, follows adoption of a 2018 law to ban PFAS in firefighting foams and in food packaging, uh, provided safer alternatives could be identified. The state's departments of ecology and health subsequently conducted alternatives analysis, submitting a report to the state legis legislature with its findings. So Terry, can you tell us more about what was actually in the report? Hi, Kate. Yeah, so from May 2018 until August last year, the state's Departments of Ecology and Health looked at the potential hazards, exposure, performance, cost, and availability of alternatives for 10 types of food packaging. And they looked at chemical alternatives and non-chemical options including bio-based plastics like polylactic acid, waxes such as beeswax or petroleum-based waxes, clay-based coatings, uh, and even silicones and other plastics like polyvinyl alcohols and polyethylene. And in the end, they determined that four product types have PFOS alternatives that are less hazardous, sufficiently available, and are comparable in cost and performance. And those are for wraps and liners, plates, Thing called food boats and pizza boxes. And the department said that wraps and liners have wax coated alternatives. Plates can be replaced with uh, clay coated and reusable options. And food boats, which are like a small rectangular paper food tray, can also be replaced with those clay coated and reusable alternatives. While pizza boxes have non PFAS coated alternatives, according to the state. And these findings then trigger a two-year period for companies to switch to products that use PFAS alternatives. So that means by late February 2023, Washington will prohibit the use of PFASs in these types of food packaging. Now, of course, that also means there were six categories of packaging where the department said they had insufficient information to conclude that there were available alternatives, at least that met all of their required criteria. So the prohibition on the use of PFOSs will not apply to bags and sleeves, bowls, trays, French fry cartons, clamshells, and interlocking folded containers. Instead, the state will reevaluate these packaging types for PFOS alternatives each year, starting this year, 
And once suitable alternatives are found, then those products too, uh, at least the use of PFAS in those products, would then be banned two years later. Okay, thank you, Terry. So we've reported that um, Washington's alternatives analysis uh, could have significant implications in Maine, which has a similar law on the books. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, momentum continues to grow across the US for a full phase out of PFAS uh, in food packaging. So can you just briefly bring us up to date on, on the latest activity there? Yeah, so like you said, Maine has, has a similar law um, as, as Washington State um, that would also ban PFAS's in food packaging after the state identifies suitable alternatives. So Washington's findings could potentially help Maine move, move toward imposing restrictions. And then in California, that state has proposed adding food packaging containing PFAS's as a priority product under its Safer Consumer Products Program. And once that is finalized, it would require industry to conduct an alternatives analysis. And after that, California could choose to impose its own regulation. And then there's New York, which just put a ban in place, uh, which um, just last year put a ban in place. And it's just a ban with no AA process. So New York is set to ban the sale and distribution of food packaging with intentionally added PFOSs as of December 31st, 2022. And like I said, that there's no alternatives analysis process there, the ban just takes effect. And New York's law is based on model legislation that was recently finalized by the Toxics in Packaging Clearinghouse. And that is a, a, a collaborative group between nine US states and they craft model legislation that other states can use to create their own laws. And it recently updated uh, its model law to add those restrictions on the use of PFOSs and phthalates in all packaging types, in including uh, food containers. So now you have model legislation and at least some uh, PFOS alternatives identified, and that potentially could spur other states to take action to restrict the use of these substances in food packaging materials. And in fact, several takeout food chains have already started to remove PFOSs from their food packaging or pledge to do so. And that includes Taco Bell, Sweetgreen, and even some grocery stores with carryout food like Trader Joe's. And just this last month, a big one, McDonald's, said it too would phase out PFOSs from its food packaging by 2025. Okay, thanks very much, Terry. Um, and you, you wrote this week that there has been a significant fall in the number of reported uh, cosmetic formulations using PFAS in the US. Can you tell us more about that? Sure, so uh, the information comes from the US Food and Drug Administration's Voluntary Cosmetic Registration Program, and companies can use that system to voluntarily submit information on any commercially distributed consumer products and their ingredients, including PFAS. Um, but the FDA uh, here said that the number of reported cosmetic formulations using PFOSs in the US fell by more than half between reporting periods in 2019 and 2020. The, the reporting companies, they can include cosmetic manufacturers, packers, and distributors. And so these companies reported using PFOSs in 506 different formulations in 2019. Uh, by the 2020 reporting period, 
the number of reported formulations using PFOSs had fallen to just 235, so more than half. And the FDA did not specify the types of PFOSs that were involved, uh, but it, it just said there were 21 different kinds of PFOS that companies had re reported using in their cosmetic formulations. Now, because the reporting here is only voluntary, it's not required, even the FDA has said we can't draw too many conclusions from this data. Uh, but there was an interesting and significant development in the cosmetics ingredient world in 2020 that's worth noting here, uh, which is California passed a law that will ban the manufacture or sale of cosmetics in the state if they contain any of two dozen different substances, including several types of long chain PFOSs. Now, while California's ban doesn't kick in until 2025, when we called the Personal Care Products Council, and that's a, a trade association representing cosmetics and personal care products companies, and we asked them about the FDA's data on the reporting of cosmetic ingredients and PFOSs, they quickly mentioned California and the law passed last year and their own work with the state as it crafted the, that legislation. So while the FDA data here is based on voluntary reports and it's just one brief period of time, it, it does suggest that at least some companies may be prompted by action in California are looking at their cosmetic product formulations and poten potentially taking steps uh, to remove or at least rely less on certain types of people. Okay, that's really interesting. Thank you very much, Terry. So let's now turn to our final topic for this week's podcast, which concerns how the UK Health and Safety Executive plans to access independent advice on UK REACH authorizations and restrictions. Uh, in a clear deviation from ECHA, the HSE is planning to draw from a pool of experts on a case-by-case -case basis. In a draft statement published on the 22nd of February, the agency said it will appoint independent experts to what it calls challenge panels, rather than maintaining standard committees as its EU counterpart does. To Andrew, um, what can you tell us about how this new process will work? Hi, Kate. Uh, so following Brexit, uh, the UK is uh, obviously no longer linked to the EU systems for um, independent, independent expert advice on hazardous chemicals, meaning it needs to come up with its own systems if it wants such advice. The EU uh, uses several standing committees, such as uh, RAC, the Risk Assessment Committee, SEAC, the Socio-Economic Analysis Committee, uh, and the Member States Committee, or MSC. And those committees have explicit regulatory powers under chemicals legislation, particularly REACH and CLP. For example, the legal text for EU REACH mandates RAC to provide an opinion on applications for authorization and it requires the commission to take into account that opinion when making its decision whether or not to grant authorization. The UK decided that with regard to chemicals it was going to more or less copy across the EU legislation but in doing so it made some changes and some of those uh, related to independent expert advice. Now, changes were 
necessary because the transfer effectively put holes in the legislation. The UK version of REACH couldn't uh, refer to RAC or SAEC because from the UK perspective, those committees uh, no longer exist. So there were always going to be some changes, but the UK did take this opportunity to play around with the format a bit. It didn't want to mimic the EU uh, exactly. It wanted to come up with something a bit different. What this meant in the end was that a lot of the activities of um, independent experts, those committees we mentioned, were brought within the responsibilities of the regulatory authority, which in this case is the Health and Safety Executive, or HSE. So just taking the previous example, instead of RAC providing an opinion um, on an application for authorization under UK REACH, the HSE provides it. Uh, but it doesn't do that in a complete vacuum of expert advice. Article 77 requires the agency to use scientific knowledge and advice, but it isn't didactic about exactly how. Uh, so what we have now is this draft statement from the HSE describing a lot of the detail. In particular, the HSE is going to create a pool of experts, which it's calling RISEP or RISEP, uh, which stands for the REACH Independent Scientific Expert Pool. And the agency will draw experts from this pool on a case-by-case -case basis as needed. Primarily, it will form these um, challenge panels. That's the, the term it's um, coined uh, for this, which will scrutinize the HSE's draft opinions on applications for authorization and restriction proposals. Interestingly, RISEP members may also be used for the HSE case teams that draw up those opinions, though obviously uh, not the same members, but from the same group. So it's a departure from the EU way, no standing committees, but a pool from which people are drawn as needed and no explicit uh, regulatory power, those panels will advise, but the HSE does not have to align itself with that advice if it doesn't think it should. Okay, thanks very much, Andrew. Now, um, we reported that NGOs are critical of parts of the plan, um, particularly its provisions for transparency and stakeholder engagement, which they say are a step in the wrong direction compared with the EU. Now, can you tell us more about this? Yes, uh, the draft document covers more than just um, this new expert pool, RISEP. There's a load of information about how stakeholders would engage with uh, the regulatory processes through consultations and attendance at meetings. And there's also information about what uh, documentation will be made public and at what stage. Generally, the NGOs are concerned about the potential for weakening the system. They would have preferred uh, the HSE to have replicated the EU system of standing committees. But of course, uh, that direction was really set uh, with the implementation of the legislation, not with this particular document, which concerns policy. The ChemTrust, which is a UK NGO, told us that the proposed system doesn't provide the same level of transparency and openness as the EU system it replaces and it is arguing for more stakeholder participation in the meetings 
of the challenge panels. It also wants publication of the register of interests of the RISET members, which we're not certain is going to happen. It's a bit unclear at the moment. <clears throat> Another NGO, Breast Cancer UK, said similar things and is advocating for the uh, creation of an NGO consortium to, quote, ensure there is a platform for civil society to effectively engage with the work of the regulator. More generally, I think the NGOs are worried about the UK falling out of sync with the EU as uh, the EU powers forward with its agenda. Every new EU decision about uh, mandatory classification, identification of SCHCs, restrictions and so on, all of those are happening um, on an ongoing basis and they have the potential to make the gap between the UK and the EU bigger and bigger. Will the UK keep pace? It's really hard to believe that it will, not just because of the politics in play, but just because of the practical issues. Uh, does the HSE have the resources it needs? Certainly there's a lot less capacity in the UK than uh, the EU, which is much bigger. There are some requirements for responding to EU decisions in the UK legislation. For example, under UKCLP, the HSE is required to respond uh, to RAC opinions on proposals for mandatory classifications in the EU. So that's going to force the UK to keep pace to some extent, but there are plenty of other areas where it could fall behind. OK, thanks very much, Andrew. So um, what, what happens next? Uh, next, the draft statement is under uh, public consultation until the 10th of March. But in the meantime, the HSE has begun a recruitment process for RISEP and ad went up on the website yesterday. The closing date for applications is the 4th of April, and I imagine some Chemical Watch readers might be interested in that. Okay, thanks. Thanks again, Andrew. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. Um, so thank you again to Andrew, Terry and Clelia for sharing their insight into today's stories with us. And thank you to you, our audience, for listening to today's episode. If you would like to find out more about the topics from today's discussion, including uh, our Global Outlook reports for 2021, please head over to the Chemical Watch website at chemicalwatch.com. Until next week, goodbye. Unlock the full value of your compliance and product stewardship with world-leading insight and intelligence from Chemical Watch. To find out more or request a demo, visit chemicalwatch.com. Chemical Watch. Intelligence to transform product safety. Chemical Watch Podcast.